Oh, perfect. That's what we want. Hello, I'm Mark Standish, and you're listening to a new season of Critical Faith. We're back from our break and are coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, where I'm a junior member. We're gathering friends and members of our ICS community here on this podcast to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We hope Critical Faith gives you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. My name is Andrew Tebbett, and I'm postdoctoral research associate at the center, and I'll be joining the Critical Faith crew for the coming year. Remote classes are now well underway at ICS, but there's one more intensive course to let you know about before we dive into our regular episodes for this semester. The topic is liberation theology, and today, we have Dean Detloff and Hector Acero-Ferrer back on the podcast to chat about Dean's upcoming course called God of Solidarity, Liberation Theology as Social Movement. This will be a six-week all-online course taking place Tuesday and Thursday evenings beginning November 3rd. You can find some information on our website, but first, here are Dean and Hector to give you an idea of what this course is about. It's a new semester and a new season here at Critical Faith. We have many exciting conversations planned for the next few months, and today's will not be an exception. I'm Hector Acero, and I'm here once again to talk to Dean Dedlov, a sessional faculty and a junior member at ICS, a Canada correspondent for America Magazine, and a wonderful colleague and friend, and also my frequent partner in conversation here at Critical Faith. So uh, welcome, Dean. Thanks, Hector. Glad to be back. Always good to be back to talk to you and especially about this topic. Excellent. So starting on November 3rd, Dean will be teaching a six-week all-online course called God of Solidarity, Liberation Theology, a Social Movement. This is a very special course. Um, there is a lot to it. It's very relevant. So the first question that I have for Dean today is really about the, the movement of liberation theology and, and his interest in it. So why now? What at ICS? Why for you? 
Yeah, thanks, Hector. It's a great question. Um, I'm going to pose it back to you after I answer it. Uh, so you can fill in all the all the gaps and everything I've forgotten. But um, yeah, why liberation theology? Why now? Uh, I think in some respects, uh, there's not a better time to be look back at liberation theology, but also to look at what's still happening in liberation theology today. Uh, Pope Francis, of course, in terms of uh, Roman Catholicism, has brought this conversation back to the fore in lots of ways. Pope Francis himself is the first pope from Latin America and in in some respects is a a product or or at least touched by uh, liberation theology. He spent the last several years rehabilitating many liberation theologians who had previously been um, sort of treated as suspicious characters. So people like Gustavo Gutierrez or Ernesto Cardinal uh, have been kind of brought back into the fold uh, in a more mainstream way under Francis, which is a a very important development. Uh, Also, Pope Francis just over the last weekend released a new encyclical for Telly Tutti about all kinds of things, but including solidarity and what's going on in the world. And I think that really you, you have to have a certain understanding of liberation theology to pick up uh, the background of the themes that Pope Francis is encouraging, not just Christians, but all people of goodwill to think about. So in, in that respect, there's an important piece of it, you know, trying to track what's going on in one of the world's largest uh, Christian traditions. But I think even more importantly than that is we're living through a time of crisis right now. Uh, The pandemic is obviously a big uh, crisis, one that everybody is struggling through in one way or another. Uh, But even prior to that, there has been uh, what Pope Francis calls another pandemic or the the virus of individualism. And that has created all kinds of inequalities and fear and xenophobia and uh, lots and lots of Uh, troubling sort of trends for the world's most vulnerable people. And liberation theology is one way that Christians historically have tried to engage these themes for the last several decades. So in a lot of respects, I think uh, there's never been a better time to explore liberation theology. Thank you, Dean. And just to to answer a bit of your your kind of rebuttal to the question uh, to me, uh, I, I I see it very similarly to you. I think that liberation theology, more than anything else, will be kind of like a toolkit, something that started back in the mid 20th century as a movement in Latin America, but then has gathered throughout the decades different elements of environmental justice awareness, uh, social justice awareness, things like what you deal with in other courses, like prison abolition or um, questions about... Um, the death penalty, all of that is included in in the kind of plethora of issues that liberation theology has struggled with and can perhaps teach us to wrestle through in the in the next few years as we as we think about that as a society here in North America as well. So based on that kind of historical development, I, I know the course that you're teaching does a bit of that historical progression. It gives you some land, it gives the students some landmarks that they should look at if they are going to consider liberation theology seriously. And I want, if it is possible for you to give us a few of those here uh, for the critical faith listeners. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I should say uh, liberation theology is a very diverse, very loosely organized set of thinkers and movements. And um, maybe I'm using the term a little too broadly so far, uh, but this is a great excuse to talk about the specificity of of what we're going to look at. Um, So there's all kinds of liberation theologies, right? There's black liberation theology, uh, womanist theology, LGBT liberation theology, lots and lots of different movements, and they're all very exciting. You could do a class on on each of them alone. 
what I've tried to do here is focus a little bit more on the Catholic expression of liberation theology, especially in Latin America. And in that uh, focus, there's kind of two um, predecessors that feed into this. One is on the theological side. So there's a very important uh, council in the Catholic Church called the Second Vatican Council or Vatican II, which really changed the way that the church sees itself oriented toward uh, the issues of contemporary society. And many of the documents published by that council uh, became very authoritative, and they really gave a lot of theologians and Christians permission to engage social justice in ways that perhaps were more difficult uh, before that council. So there's a big theological side to this that has encouraged uh, all kinds of theologians to reflect on that. Um, but there's also a lot of social movements that precede all of this as well. Uh, Catholic labor unions, for instance, that are all over the place, all over the world, that became more and more uh, radicalized, both theologically and politically, over the course of the 20th century. Um, peasant organizations, uh, farmers' liberation movements, land reforms, all these kinds of things also feed into liberation theology on the ground. And so the class really tries to give people a sense of both of those things. So we'll look on the one hand at um, some of the documents from Vatican II and Latin American bishops who are trying to work this out in an institutional sense, but we'll also look at how liberation theology is fed from real people's movements and real struggles that are happening uh, around the world that, that prompts these theological conversations. So the, the course will definitely look at some of these theological pieces, but even more importantly, I think some of the grassroots movements that feed into that. Thank you, Dean. That seems very exciting. And it's really a sign of hope for me, especially as, as, I, as I see people interested in, in the movement and how it's evolved and also the different expressions of it in, in, in different contexts and in response to different struggles. But my next question is really about your, your prediction of liberation theologies possible dialogue with mainstream movements. So we're trying to rehabilitate some of it. Francis is doing some of that work. But like long term, do you do you see the product of the thought and collaboration of liberation theologians and practitioners being able to enter into dialogue with especially the more conservative sections of the different churches, not just of the Roman Catholic Church, but evangelical movements, charismatic movements that are prevalent in a place like Latin America? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I think it's difficult to speculate about because so much of what's happening in Latin America, especially, is um, really volatile and up in the air in so many countries. You know, in some countries, it's uh, the, the sort of the tug of war between the right and the left um, is one that is not just a matter of uh, four-year cycles like one might see in the United States, but, you know, m much, much shorter time frames. Uh, and so it's difficult to, to predict. But I'll say uh, in terms of the future of liberation theology, I think it's best to look at its present, which is to say that it's, it's very vital in Latin America still. Um, I think people in North America, well, at least in, in Canada and the U.S., certainly not Mexico, but in, in these parts of North America, liberation theology has sometimes been reduced now to sort of a topic on, on syllabi or it's a kind of academic or archival interest that's viewed as a, a historical movement. In other parts of the world, though, liberation theologians are the ones who are out in the streets with megaphones, you know, telling people that you need to be advocating for the working class or for the interests of indigenous peoples or whoever else it might be. And so in that respect, I think that the future of liberation theology um, might be unclear, but it certainly has one in Latin America. Uh, how it relates to these conservative movements, 
um, is also part of the, uh, the topic of the, the course as well. Um, we'll look, for instance, at a journalist named Penny Lernell, who's unfortunately passed away, but did some, some incredible on-the-ground journalism on the, the creation of liberation theology. And in it, she too speculates about the futures uh, of conservative movements in the church, uh, undermining many of the incredible uh, achievements of liberation theology, but also wondering, well, how might liberation theology dialogue with uh, people who have been um, sort of swayed in some other direction? And I think Francis, of anybody, is actually somebody trying to really pull all of that together, sometimes more successfully than others, sometimes less successfully. But in any case, uh, it's all to say that liberation theology um, remains a force, an active force in these countries and still will. And I think for those of us who are, are observing it or trying to learn from it, um, we, we could certainly uh, stand to gain quite a lot from being provoked by uh, the future and present of liberation theology. Great. Your description of the of the megaphone and the priest just really reminds me of my childhood and <laughs> the idea that I grew up with, the sacerdote misionero, the, the missional priest, which uh, was that mm. person, was the person in the street who happened to be a priest, but who was also a community mobilizer um, for social justice causes. And then I came into I came here to North America to, to Toronto and the the missional priest is a person that goes overseas to convert people to Christianity, which is really not <laughs> at all related to what I was used to. So that brings back that memory, but also how prevalent liberation theology, even though even not under that name, but just as religion or faith is in the streets of the main cities in Latin America, in a place like Medellin, it will be like that, in a place like Rio, um, especially in the poorest areas, you will hear that presence woven with other social movements that you can't really distinguish where the priest is, a, is an activist or when it is a, a faith leader. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's an incredible testament. Uh, I I would love to hear more of your own uh, reflections. And I do want to tell uh, people who are thinking of taking the class that you'll get a chance to hear more of Hector's uh, reflections because I've convinced him to come <laughs> speak with us in the course. So I, w I would love to be interviewing you uh, quite more on this this podcast. But uh, certainly everyone in the class will get a chance to interview you. So you better... Uh, you better get those memories in order, I guess, because uh, uh, I, I think that there's so much um, to be learned from your engagement uh, with these movements. I'm trying to curate those in my mind now as I, as I <laughs> encounter things like the new encyclical, because I grew up with a lot of things that I would not have originally identified as liberation theology, but now I am identifying mm, mm. them as such. So just before we close, I wanted to just pick your brain about the encyclical itself. It was just uh, released last week. You've been reading through it already. Are there any first thoughts that come to mind that, that our people need to need to hear? Yeah, I think so. Uh, there's so much happening in this encyclical. Um, for better and worse, it's kind of all over the place. But I think that's because it recognizes in a really deep way that the, the crises that we face in the world are interconnected. Uh, you can't talk about one without talking about many, many others, you know, from uh, how people treat immigrants to the death penalty, to uh, the ruling economic ideologies of things like neoliberalism. Uh, Pope Francis is trying to draw all kinds of lines between these dots. 
And I think that what we are being presented with and, and invited to uh, by Pope Francis is a recognition of that integration, which is something he's been telling us since Laudato Si. It's been a character characterizing uh, quality of his papacy. Um, speaking of liberation theologians, uh, Leonardo Boff, you know, one of the most famous Brazilian liberation theologians, has already been saying uh, what Pope Francis has done is sort of his part, um, and he's he's celebrated uh, Fratelli Tutti as a uh, uh, an invitation by Pope Francis for us to now do our part, which is to take up uh, the kinds of things that it has said. I think there's much more to be said about the encyclical. You know, I'm, I'm hearing quite a lot from other uh, readers that there's lots of things left out of this encyclical in terms of solidarity. You know, there are some, some scant references to race. Uh, there should certainly be many more, as racism is, uh, uh, you know, one of the most heavily mobilizing forces on the right, and anti-racism has become one of the greatest places of solidarity around the world in just the last uh, several years. Um, the same goes for women, you know, not nearly as much attention to women as uh, unique voices contributing something to the conversation in this encyclical as there needs to be. But all that said, with these and many other provisions, I do think there's lots of themes in this encyclical that I hope offer a path to, um, you know, pay attention to those omissions and to take up the positive uh, and challenging calls that the Pope has given to us. Uh, you've also been reading it, Hector. I'd love to hear what you make of it as somebody who's um, observing, too, what is going on in Latin America and what is going on in liberation theology. I mean, what, what do you think this encyclical is doing for those movements? Well, I, I was very excited to, to see some of the themes, like just skimming through it first, you pick up those key words that, that really resonate with liberation theology and, and with a, a shift in Roman Catholicism's way of, of approaching what happened in Latin America in the last century. But one of the kind of the maybe deeper reflections that I've been able to do in the last couple of days is around how kind of disorganized or how hectic it seems and to me, I go back to a, to an Ignatian Jesuit principle is the idea of um, the cry or the call of the poor and the oppressed. We can't expect that to be organized and to be mm. already structured and, and given a framework for us. He is kind of trying to put it all in the page. Lots of things that are at stake here that are important that the church needs to hear at the moment. And he does it in a few pages and he kind of shifts from one to, to the other. And that, that is a bit of what the cacophony that you hear on the streets of Latin America is mm. all those different calls that are, that are pulling your attention, that have a, a hold on you because the marginalized are all in front and they all have different claims on what needs to change. So to me, it reflects that well. But at the same time, I, I do see it as a return to reflecting about these issues the way it was done in the 50s and 60s again. So this is not a conclusive document. This is an, like an opening up again of a discussion that had been shut for, for a couple of decades. I, I like the direct references or mentioning of the systemic issues, the, the systemic issues that are connected to, to financial systems, to the way that corporations work, all of that. I like seeing that in a, in a document that comes out of the Vatican because it is a big commitment. But I, I need to read it more. <laughs>
Well, I, I, you said quite a lot of insightful things already. Uh, I love that image. It's going to stick with me uh, that the disjointedness of the document uh, reflects the the sort of streets of Latin America where everybody's trying to uh, be heard um, and call attention to real problems that are connected. So thanks for that. Well, we'll keep thinking about it. Um, before we go, we often ask our contributors here, our participants, to to leave us with some resources. And we've asked you this question several times in different contexts, but today I, I don't want to ask you for like readings or books. I want to hear about movements, about experiments. Uh, I know you have a couple of them, at least that I've heard you describe that are really neat. Things that have happened inspired by liberation theology and then that are very unique in the way that they develop. So anything that comes to mind for us? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, that's, I think, the most exciting way into liberation theology is not the, the doctrine or the sort of um, reading of texts and all that, which are all very exciting. Not, don't mean de to, to denigrate it, but the most exciting thing is what happens on the ground uh, that makes a real difference in, in the lives of, uh, you know, people who can't read in the first place, for instance. Um, some of those uh, things that are the most exciting to me, at least, are uh, movements like the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. Um, one of the most inspiring things I think that has happened in 20th century Christianity is uh, a number of um, Christians who were uh, Christians and revolutionaries who came together to overthrow uh, a regime that had been uh, really, really preying on the vulnerable in, in Nicaragua for decades. Uh, and people finally said no more and, and contributed to quite a beautiful project, although it was, uh, you know, attacked virulently by other Christians in other parts of the world, uh, not least uh, the United States. Um, so the Sandinistas are, are, I think, one of the most um, intriguing movements and one we'll look at in the course and one I encourage people to read more about. Um, another that I think is uh, sometimes lost in the um, the excitement, maybe, of liberation theology, but uh, all, all the more important um, is the, the Zapatistas in Chiapas in southern Mexico. Uh, for people who don't know, the Zapatistas uh, were uh, and are a mostly indigenous uh, movement of people who sprung up um, in the, the 1990s uh, in a formal way, informally earlier, and had resisted uh, some really exploitative practices, especially in coffee farming, but many others in that region. Chiapas is the poorest uh, state in Mexico. And they decided they were going to organize their own communities into a number of what are called autonomous zones. And at one point, they had a, an armed conflict with the Mexican government, um, a conflict that was mediated by Bishop Samuel Ruiz, the bishop of that particular area, that diocese. And um, it all sort of suggests some some really intriguing things about the way that Catholicism uh, relates to people's self-determination, the way that it relates to the voice of the poor, and also the way that it negotiates peace between different people. So there's so many uh, moving parts to the story of Catholicism and the Zapatistas, and we'll look at uh, just a few of them in the course. So I always try to point people to movements, um, as you rightly point out, Hector. Uh, you can learn a lot more, I think, from those than, than other sort of ways in. Um, and those are exciting to me. Uh, any that you find particularly exciting? Those are a couple of historical examples. I should have maybe thought of some more contemporary ones. Uh, what are you seeing, Hector, that's giving you a lot of energy? Well, um, there is uh, the resurgence of a Colombian movement. So I've, I've been doing a little bit of research about that in the last few weeks. And it's a movement in w Western Colombia called uh, Golconda. And, and it's a gathering of people from different um, racial backgrounds. 
after 1968. So that was the, with the origins of liberation theology and with all the resurgence of, of the conversations about systemic racism, they are gathering again. Mm. And it's a movement that was led by mainly white priests and bishops back in the 60s. But these bishops and these, these priests set up already a formation of black and indigenous priests. So the priests that are leading the movement now are themselves diverse. So interesting developments, the advocacy for racial equality, so that being uh, an, an issue at the forefront of their imagination and their action, and the fact that they are not exclusive to Roman Catholicism, but they have included some of the charismatic movements that are in the region, that it makes it really exciting to me. That's great. Well, I look forward to hearing more from you in the class uh, about that. Thank you, Dean. Thank you for your participation here. We look forward to your course. So for those of you who are interested, we've given you a little bit of a glimpse into what you'll see in the course. So um, I hope you can join us. So thank you, Dean. Thanks, Hector. And that brings us to our final segment, What's Your Pleasure? This is where we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun. The movies and television shows we're watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So Andrew, by way of official welcome to the Critical Faith team, what's your pleasure? Uh, well, thanks. Yeah, um, so my pleasure is basically... Um watching baseball. Um, I was pretty distraught when it when it was delayed and we didn't have baseball for a few months for the summer, but I was uh, pretty happy that it ended up starting again in um, in July. And I, I kind of got into watching baseball and I think back in 2015 when the back when the Jays were were actually good. But they've been, you know, getting better over the last few years. They got some some young players who are fun to watch this year. And I don't know, it, you know, baseball really became an interesting sport to watch for me when when uh, I figured out um back then that uh there's so much more going on in the sport than than i than just you know hitting balls around and, and catching them and, and running around bases um I, I think it was when i when i realized that pitchers threw balls were in the dirt on purpose that wasn't always a mistake um that they were actually trying to psych out the the batter um, by throwing an intentional ball then then i really realized that there was more happening in this sort of mind game between pitcher and batter than uh than just yeah hitting home runs and that kind of stuff and you know what's what's that makes that especially uh, interesting in terms of watching baseball is that you really only see that dynamic of pitching and, and what kind of pitch is coming and you know trying to psych out the batter um, when you're watching baseball on TV. So it's one of the few sports I think that's actually in in a relative sense or in that specific sense better on TV than than actually being there in person. So um, yeah, that's that's my pleasure. So uh, who are you rooting for now that the Blue Jays are out? I'm rooting for uh, the Dodgers, actually, because and that goes. Back. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like they really need to win. But especially since that whole Astros scandal where, where they were, you know, using television feeds and screens to steal signs um, illegally. Yeah, they did that against the, the Dodgers. Um, so I think it'd be, it'd be really great if the if the Dodgers uh, made it. So that's my pick for this year. But we'll see. What about you? My pleasure. It's so unphilosophical that it comes off philosophically, um, <laughs> which is uh, 
light or like a nice lighting in a room. I uh, recently moved in back in with my sister and she has a really nice house and has really nice light everywhere, natural light. So natural light just makes everything, I don't know, just feel more pleasant. And even if you're like grinding through a difficult philosophical text or like doing something that uh, you want to stop doing, um, it's okay because you can keep going because the light's really nice. So anyways, my pleasure is natural light. That's it for our show this week. If you'd like to learn more about this course, God of Solidarity, Liberation Theology as Social Movement, beginning November 3rd, or if you'd like to register for the course, you can visit our website at www.icscanada.edu. You can also email our registrar, Elizabeth Aras, at academic-registrar at icscanada.edu with any questions you might have. For more from Dean, you can join him and his co-host Matt Bernico as they discuss Christianity and leftist politics on their podcast, The Magnificast, available wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can find more information on the website just mentioned. And if anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can follow Hector as at AceroF underscore Hector. You can follow me as at Mark Standish. You can follow Dean as at Dean Detloff. And you can follow ICS as at INSCHR. And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, follow along with us on Spotify, or find us on your podcast app of choice. Remember, following and reviewing the podcast helps people find us and keeps us on their radar. And most importantly, tell your friends. Mm-hmm.